the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is, and welcome back as we head into Hour 3 this Tuesday, May 3rd. Uh, delight always to have the Holmans here. Now, today we just have Lewis Holman. Hugh Holman uh, is out today. He'll be back with us next week. Lewis is the um, is the uh, managing director at Inside Analytics, LLC. Uh, that's also the website, too. Yep. InsideAnalyticsLLC.com. That's accurate. Yeah. Thank you for coming here. Uh, we've been discussing uh, all aspects of this released uh, draft opinion by Samuel Alito and that garnered four other votes thus far uh, that took place last night and everything from the merits of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which it overturns to the way in which it has been treated, to the way Democrats are responding and treating it. Um, here, you know, I do want to talk a little bit about the way this did get out. And just this isn't the most important part of the story, but it is an important part of the story. First of all, um, yeah, good question uh, over a power line. Is the FBI going to raid the house of the Politico reporter who published the Alito opinion or is that just reserved for reporters who got Ashley Biden's diary? Yeah, or, you know, any number, any number of conservatives we can talk about who get the FBI raiding their homes. Um, and it is interesting that, you know, you break the precedent by releasing um, by releasing this opinion, which has never been done before in the history of the Supreme Court. Right in front of a contentious midterm? Right, not in front of the contentious midterm, but also, as you're saying, the Supreme Court should be upholding a precedent. Right. You know, I mean, this, this, this disorients the brain at so many levels of what happened. Here's another small aspect to it. I've been trying to, Lewis, and I, I get your opinion in full in just a moment on everything here, but I've been trying to piece together the various parts of this over the course of this show. Here's another one I haven't addressed, which is you would want the president of the United States, I would think, to say something about the integrity of the Supreme Court and how no one should rush to, excuse me rush to judgment and that the supreme court should be willing should be able to do its job outside of a political context and a political weaponization of one opinion you would think the president of the united states who came to office promising to restore normalcy and norms would say something about this unprecedented really very radical leak for those of us that went to law school it's just it's it is jaw-dropping that this happened. You would think he would say something about that. He didn't. He did put out a statement, uh, a written statement. Uh, he didn't give a verbal one. My guess is his handlers wouldn't really quite trust him to give a verbal statement if anyone deigned to ask him a question. But it's 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 a one-page statement uh, with three points, each one about uh, how important it is to preserve and maintain Roe versus Wade and its framework and what the administration has been do- has been doing to do so. Not a word, not a word about the sanctity or the importance of the Supreme Court, not a word about letting the Supreme Court operate outside the realm of politics. I mean, it's it's what Elizabeth Warren, it's it's much like what Elizabeth Warren said today. 
She said, and I don't know if she's right about the first part, but it doesn't matter. She said the majority of this country does not agree with what the Supreme Court's doing. I don't know if she's right about that. I just, no one probably knows exactly if she's right about that. But that's exactly not the reason we have a Supreme Court. The Supreme Court does not exist to ratify majorities. There would be no point to have an institution that simply puts passed by majority stamps on everything state and federal legislatures do. The Supreme Court is there to actually check majorities when they run afoul of the Constitution right. it's, it's or sort of the afoul of someone's rights. It's kind of the inflexible backbone of our institutions. Exactly. It's an anti-majoritarian institution right. by definition. Anyway, that's, some of that's on the table too. You've watched the news cycle for the last 24 hours. Any thoughts you have, more than welcome to just unload. So uh, I'm really happy to see that this is being come at it not from a, a language of is the fetus a person. We're not dithering on sort of the table settings, as it were, of this particular dinner party. You know, we're, we're, we, we've moved beyond that and now we're, we're actually sensibly as conservatives asking the question, are we even having the party, right? Is this actually up for the federal government as an institution to really weigh in on? And so – you know, as someone who really is, is like we were talking about last week about the Pareto uh, distribution and oh, how yes, it causes. Yes, 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 yes. You'll remember one of the big weaknesses of it is that the larger scale an organization becomes, the more inefficient it becomes for its average members. And so, whenever you can break a system down from a federal monolith of 330 million people into 50 parallel systems of between 500,000 and 45 million people. You know, you've got a lot more of an interesting dynamic in terms of cultural vibrancy, uh, uh, fitting sort of culture to the the civic population that's in the area, and and, and so you just get better better solution making generally. You know, um, and well, so especially on a contentious issue, right? No, and so I'm thrilled with this, and and it and you know the, the the great thing is is that you know no one's saying you can't do what you want. All we're saying is it's a state's issue, so take it up with your state. You know, it, it's not a very assailable position. There's at, a at lot the in what you just said. No, there's a huge amount in what you just said. And one of them is the pro-choice movement, which has been, you know, um, uh, which has existed to protect Roe versus Wade for 49 years. Well, the other thing that, that, that actually, if I just want to cut in really sure, fast, sure. that you had been talking about is you don't know how popular this thing right. is. And yeah. that's part of because – the language around it has become so politicized that any attempt at framing the question can, you know, depending on who's doing the writing, will result in wildly different statistical outcomes, even if you're just checking it effectively the same basic principle, right? Should, uh, uh, you know, you, you might well, ask. Let me it, put it this way Gallup, the Gallup asks the, nas- the question nationally a lot of different ways, but the, the most baseline question they ask is, do you consider yourself pro choice or pro life? And it's about a 47 49. Split. It's very very contentious. That's what you'd expect. Which is a contentious. B within a margin of error, and C possibly pro-lifers may have won this and not known it in the sense of you know that big chunk of the forty nine percent might just be California, New York, and you know Seattle and San Francisco. Sure. You know, there's something to be said for the hyper concentration of opinion. Right. Right. right? right. You know, if if. And this is part of the anger I suspect of much of the Democratic Party is that they're because they're a very urban party. They're they're power tends to accumulate in a hyper-concentrated minority of counties. And so you've got kind of that gerrymandering problem of vote overrun. Once you've got first past the post, you know, what do you do with the extra 30 percentage point of Democrats in California who effectively then 
don't have marginal political value. That's right. That's ex- that's that's a really valid point. I wanted to substantiate a point you were making. Uh, I'm <laughs> blessedly I don't know <laughs> if it's blessed or not. I'm on. I got on. I don't know how, but I decided not to remove myself from. I got on all these Democratic fundraising email lists. Oh dear. Yeah. So last night I got one from Nancy Pelosi saying. I'm sick to my stomach. It was fast, man. They were ready for this one. During the show, I got one from Gavin Newsom. Now, obviously, it's his apparatus. It's not really him. But it says from Gavin Newsom, and it says Stuart, because that's what they know me as. Stuart, last night's draft opinion is an appalling attack on the rights of women across this country. If it stands, it will destroy lives and put countless women in danger. Leave that aside for a moment. We can come back to that. But get his next sentence. In California, we are going to propose an amendment to the Constitution here to enshrine the right to choose in our state's Constitution. Okay, it's exactly what you said. How can the governor of California ask us to contribute money to his effort to uh, reify Roe versus Wade in his state if the Supreme Court made it illegal? It didn't. Right. It didn't. It gave the states exactly what he wants to do. If anything, you know, th- this allows everyone to advance precisely the, the, the sort of the causes or, or whatever hangups they have on the issue at a more local and specific level. If, if I don't know, uh, Oregon wants to institute abortion with no term limits, like then that obviously might be appalling to me, you know, right. but who am I to stop them? On some level, right? If you want to have your crazy party over there, you can do it over there and the sensible people will eventually move to places that aren't insane. It's a wonderful self-correcting system. It is until we get to the argument, which is probably premature, but until we get to the argument about what states may and may not do. And it's it's probably premature to get there right now. We're just getting used to possibly well, overturning. The, we don't really have federal statutes for murder. No. Right. No. So that that. Federal stat- we don't have federal statutes around ab- abortion seems perfectly appropriate by comparison. Right. So- right. We do have federal statutes on some kinds of murder and, sure. some con- and ca- certainly kidnapping and things like that. But, you know, the debate that Lincoln had against Douglas was what could a territory do? What could uh, – what was the right thing for a state to do or not? And we're not there yet. We're not there yet. We need to get used to this first. We'll pick this up on the other side. There's a lot of facets to this, and Lewis's mind is always alive and obviously also welcoming of your calls. 602-508-0960. I'm Seth Leibson. He's Lewis Hallman, and we will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. For those of you looking for a great investment opportunity with a wonderful return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. They are my friends because I have spent so much time with them and really looked under the hood and kicked the tires to fully understand the offer. As I say, it's really great. I'm talking about a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Why Refi helps people who are doing their best to dig out a debt the right way by doing the right thing to pay off their debts and to do so with dignity. Along the way, they even repair their FICO scores. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by as I say, really good people who are doing really good by other 
people. I only endorse products like this after complete and thorough reviews and getting to know the quality and ability of these people. So what more can I say? Check them out by going to investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, then the letter Y, investrefi.com. I did that wrong. That's invest, the letter Y, then refi.com. Or call 855-316-3087. Investyrefi.com. Tell them Seth sent you. Okay, Lewis Hallman, welcome back. Thank you for joining me here. 602-508-0960. You wanted to pick up on something I said in my monologue uh, with relation to some of the COVID argument and uh, feel free you want to kind of take me on so this is sort of a again you know with such a contentious topic um i I agreed with virtually everything you said in your monologue but i wanted to take umbrage with the section where you were you were addressing sort of a lot of the covid overreaches talking about how effectively the argument of bodily autonomy is not one that can be sustained some of us in other words were saying whatever happened to my body my choice with all these mandates exactly you know after all of these mandates have happened you know uh, uh, we we lose certain certain uh, uh, rights and privileges, and so how how can you then sustain this on the on the other right, side when right. we're talking about abortion? Right. And I didn't find really like the the way that this argument unrolled because if I, I was on the other side and I were picking apart what you'd said, I, I would think immediately that you were saying that. We as conservatives have had our rights trampled over, so we should be in the business then of making sure that since these are obviously not rights that anyone is willing to uphold, that we should not then uphold them generally, right? There may not be merit to the to the liberal my body, my choice on the position of abortion, but but making the case from the fact – it's not one body. It's, it well, could, right. But making the case that because conser- like rights were trampled on in COVID, that this is not then a, a, a worthwhile argument for the government to advance I think is – uh, not convincing to me. I think, fair, I think it's, it's fair point. ethically dubious. Yeah, no, fair point. Here's what I was trying to say, and I and 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 it's this. Um, I think a lot of things. If you read the Alito opinion, a lot of uh, assumed knowledge turns out to be untrue as he goes through the history of how Roe versus Wade came about and how many of the actually historical faulty. Um, fa- faulty things that were written in Roe versus Wade have now become known as faulty, bad history, bad uh, – not just bad uh, legal reasoning but bad fact. A lot of bad facts were in Roe versus Wade and Alito is very specific about that. So a lot of the arguments that you sus- used to sustain Roe versus Wade I think are falling apart before our eyes in this Alito opinion. One of them – which is not an argument in the four corners of Roe versus Wade, but one of the pro-choice arguments that I think has been most prominent for the past 30 or so years has been this mantra of my body, my choice. And all I was trying to say is during COVID, when many of us who also saw fundamental rights the Supreme Court created, um, the right to travel, right, uh, the right to work and earn a living, the right to go to school, uh, these are all considered fundamental rights by the Supreme Court. When those were eviscerated, shut down by you know dictate and fiat at state and federal and in some cases corporate levels, when those were shut down, the argument "my body, my choice" was irrelevant to right. the to the state, irrelevant Didn't to carry the corporation. Much water, right. So all I'm saying is when when fundamental rights no longer can be defended under the mantra of my body, my choice, 
the left showed us during COVID, they don't take my body, my choice seriously. Sure, That's no, all I was trying right, to right. say is they showed themselves to be unserious and that mantra no longer holds water. That's That was the point I was making. Is that a little different? Oh, no, than- I, I, that's an excellent clarification. Thank you. Well, it, it's 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 I, I don't mean it to, to be um, to be defensive. I just mean to say that when one examines and looks under the hood of Roe v. Wade, you find a lot of problems. One of them was the racial angle. Sure. One of them was, you know, a, a lot of this transpired through covid. But 2020 was a big year and not just covid. The other big part of that year was Black Lives Matter. And one cannot look at the abortion regime in this country, let's call it the Roe regime in this country, one cannot look at that and see the devastating and dramatic impact it has had on black lives so much more so than nearly anything else, including police violence. Right. No, absolutely. You know, just in terms of the overall sort of numbers, you know, that it's quite uh – a significant effect. The, the other thing that's kind of interesting. Well, about think of this, it this way: COVID took uh, how many black, uh, how many African Americans' uh, lives did COVID take over the course of three years? Half, half the number of black abortions every year. Wow. Do black lives matter? Or do black lives matter? Right. That's the. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Well, Go ahead. The, the other thing that's sort of interesting about this that, that I would say is this kind of comes in. in an era in our in our history now where we're really kind of aging as a society and as a species. And so, you know, now that we've been urbanized creatures for about the last hundred years in a really large scale way, um, our birth rates have declined very, very significantly. And so there actually there is something to be said for the fact that that the the ease with which abortion is asked is accessed may have accelerated this trend significantly. Um the trend being the trend being the aging of our population. Of course, of yeah. course yes. Um, and, and so I mean, you, you remove sixty-three million babies over the course of forty-nine years. Sure. Yeah. Right. You know, and then particularly uh, uh, in the regards that, that you know you're, you're going to have increased sort of dependency ratios and yep. all sorts of other issues kind right. of stemming from that. Right. Um, and also, you know, uh, uh, very depressed portions of the labor force, which is one thing that we're now starting to see with the mass retirement of baby boomers. Um, Do we have a replacement problem in this country? Uh, so we, we teetering? America has about one of the strangest demographies in the world because its population kind of looks like a wavy column, just just kind of up and down like a beanpole demography. And so it's very stable and we also use immigration very heavily ah, yes. in order right. to, to kind of keep everything balanced out since most immigrants are disproportionately young. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. We'll be picking that up and taking your calls on the other side. 602-508-0960. I'm Seth. He's Lewis. We'll be right back. This song is actually an interesting setup for what I wanted to do, Ico Ico. Um, I remember in college, all the hippies and peaceniks used to love to sing and dance to this. It's a war song. Right. It's, a, it's a tribal war song. And um, I'll, I'll use that as a segue. I, I haven't heard the word fascism so much as I have in the last 24 hours. Uh, as uh, Joy Bahar and others on the left have been saying, what Sam Alito and the Supreme Court are engaging in is fascism. Joy Bahar went even so far as to say, 
what's next, Brown versus Board of Education. We'll come to that in a moment. But uh, this notion of us being fascists, Lewis, for uh, what? Expanding the vote? Right. Giving states and people, citizens and their legislatures more control over how their states handle things by expanding the vote on an issue is fascism. It's quite nearly the opposite of the definition of fascism, isn't it? Well, this is a, sort of a continuation of the trend of, of appropriating words that, that reflect basic human universal evils and then remaking them as effectively a slang term for the people that disagree with me. The most recent cycle of we went through this was, uh, was racist until the term became so denuded that people have been called racist for appreciating the cuisine of different ethnicities. <laughs> yeah. right? Racists so, came to stand for... You're registered with a different party than I am, right? And, and so <laughs> yeah. once, once you once yeah. you abuse the term so thoroughly, you know, people start stop taking it seriously. Yeah. We get used to it. It doesn't it's carry the same sort of vis- yeah. visceral or profound reaction that it used to. And so, fascist has sort of become the term du jour at, at, at this point. Um, Syntactical saturation is a phrase I once heard. You overuse a word and it loses its 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 special importance, its toxicity, or its meaning, and so we've done that to racism. Racism means we've almost also, nothing anymore. Also, sort of a parallel concept at play here um, called uh, uh, conceptual drift. Oh, do that. Where we take a phrase – sort of describes the whole process that we've seen now with, with the word racism where you take a phrase that has certain properties and you add to or you modify you know, the accepted definition of it such that the term lexically then drifts over time. And so what we've been seeing is a lot of conceptual drift, right? Trying to define what rights are uh-huh. in a way that then includes weird positive rights, right? The access to health care is uh-huh. one of those positive rights that okay. still kind of confuses me uh-huh. because it, it presupposes perpetual and universal access to high quality health care, education and doctors, for instance. Yeah. So so like, you know, that's a wonderful privilege for an advanced society to bestow on its people, but but to me that can't be a right in the purest sense. And so these sorts of processes, right, the redefinition of rights, the reuse of terms, uh-huh. uh, uh, really kind of falls under this larger category of uh, conceptual drift. A big part of the Alito decision, I'm only halfway through it, um, and it's really good reading in the sense of, as I think I was mentioning earlier, it's it's very easy to understand what he's writing. He writes very clearly. Uh, and Others do too, but he he did here. It's it, I don't want people to be intimidated from reading it. It's very instructive, it, and um, one of the things he he does and spends a lot of time on, at least in the earlier part of the of this uh, draft opinion, Lewis, is that point of where do right? How did it become a right? Where where did abortion become a fundamental right? And he finds actually nothing until basically the year nineteen seventy three. Right. And it was created by the Supreme Court, as it has created a lot of other rights. You're now talking about health care as a right. And that kind of goes back to my point about my body, my uh, my body, my choice. You know, we had a whole bunch of fundamental rights that were being violated that were created by the Supreme Court, not just one, not just the right to choose to end a pregnancy. We were talking about other uh, at least three that I can think of, the right to work, the right to travel. Religious and the, services. And the right to educate religion. Okay, three, four, now four. Yeah, uh, and and by the way, that fourth is in the Constitution. Yes, indeed. They didn't have to invent that one. Uh, what they've been going about is uh, uninventing it and trying to unravel it, uh, which is why I, 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 I think that my body, my choice thing has been 
also denuded because it showed that the left wasn't serious about it. And right. and and not not being serious about something on the left isn't in and of itself a thing, but it is in and of itself a thing when they show the rest of the world they're not serious about it. Right. Right. The tell was called. Is that the right way to say that? The, the opening hand is was, revealed. The yeah. what? The opening is revealed. Fair enough. Six zero two five zero eight. Zero nine six zero. Let me put in a word for my friends at Balance of Nature. I take it every single day. Balanceofnature.com. Their fruits and veggies, one hundred percent natural. Blend of fifteen vegetables and sixteen fruits. That's all it is. Nothing added. Not one single thing. Third party tested. I take it every single day. It keeps my energy high, boosts my immunity, and it's great for repair work too. Body repair. Uh, check them out, balanceofnature.com. Make sure you discount, use discount code BALANCE. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. I am Seth. He is Lewis Hallman. Lewis, there was a uh, another aspect to this that I thought you'd find interesting. I was, I was, I was beginning to talk about it in, uh, in, I, think, in, in I think, the first hour. Uh, Barry Weiss, many people know her as uh, as the liberal but free speech, pro-free speech liberal who resigned from the New York Times because she couldn't take the hatred and animosity anymore, and especially after the Tom Cotton op-ed uh, contrata. Um, she writes over at uh, Substack. She is, um, by her own description, pro-choice. Um, she is, by her own description, a liberal. But she's writing a really interesting thing about how this leak from the Supreme Court, you know, could happen and how the left did it. We're, we're pretty certain it came from the left. We, we have a pretty good idea of who it came from. It shouldn't be hard to figure out. I was delighted to see that uh, John Roberts is bringing in uh, the U.S. Marshal Service to investigate as opposed to the FBI. So we might actually get to the truth here. <laughs> OK, but here's what she wrote. Sure. It's to my mind, the question of what this leak means for the institution of the Supreme Court is the most profound one. This is because it captures in a single act what I believe is the most important story of our moment, the story of how American institutions become a casualty in the culture war, the story of how no institution is immune, not our universities, not our medical schools, not legacy media, not techno technology behemoths, not the federal bureaucracy, not even the highest court. In the land, the Supreme Court was always the most cloistered governmental institution in America, the one where wisdom and precedent reverence for the constitutional tradition outweighed everything else. If there was something sacred in our democracy that remained, that was it. Kind of an interesting point. So I'm struck by the fact that we're coming up now on our nation's 250th birthday in a couple of years. 26, 2026. Yep. Um, and – that it's it's really a rare concept or a rare institution or a rare idea that is not so changed through living through 10 generations of sort of the human telephone game that it is not irreconcilably altered by the end of that chain. And is that so, about right, 10 generations yep, from 70 20, to 70? At 25 right. years of generation. Great, great, yeah. great. And so um, – on some level, it's not surprising that the nature of our institutions should change. But what I think is going on and what this really does for me is it kind of brings into the fold the quiet and increasing fever pitch wherein the court has been increasingly used by the other two branches of government as kind of this indirect football 
of legislative fiat. You know, we saw with the end of the Obama and the Trump presidencies, all of the ruckus and the fighting over how many senators does it take to uh, uh, confirm a justice? Right. How are we changing this limit or altering this limit or, or, or you know, mucking, mucking around with the system such that we can get our guy in in the short run and, you know, uh, uh, screw the long-term cultural implications. And so, you know, to me, this is really just sort of the, the latest and clearest example of this pattern of behavior that we seem to be engaged in where we're, we're starting to really politically weaponize the Supreme Court. And this is a dangerous thing that is happening. Yeah, yeah. By the way, this this is an important thing, this short-term, everything's a short-term. We don't care about the long-term. We have to win this, right? This, this battle this is the war. Every battle is the war. Right. So there's no. There's all, that also means that it's always about personality and never about platform, strategy, and philosophy, right? If we were playing the iterated game instead of just the next midterm, we'd be thinking a lot more about how our enemy's actions and their overreaches in the current cycle reflects on us down the road. I think all of that, and I think also this notion that every short-term victory is the entire war is part of what feeds what I've called the crisis industrial complex. It's sort of the, the Everything Hootie versus Tootsies kind of nature of the political it, it, machine. And every day, right. and every day. So, you know, how much of a panic was everyone in uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine? I mean, this president of the United States made it the top of his and a whole 25 percent of his State of the Union address. And no one could rush fast enough to virtue signal and scream about this. Uh, that's gone. That's gone. The war is going on. Oh, yeah. It, it's just gone. Also, a- a- as was as was Jen Psaki saying 10 days ago that people should still wear masks on airplanes only until it got to the White House Correspondents' Dinner where keep, no one was wearing a mask. Keep an eye, by the way, speaking of the war, on uh, May 9th, there's supposed to be what was going to be a large victory parade in Moscow, and oh. it's thought by some analysts that Putin may actually try to formally declare war on May 9th so that they can access the Russian military reserve system legally instead of uh-huh. using their active duty only. Oh, Interesting. Interesting. So, okay. I mean, we haven't really had time to do much of that, but I thought just given that you teed me yeah, up. Yeah, no, 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 that. no. That's fine. We'll bookmark it and look at it. Um, I still think it's important that we don't forget with all this discussion about breaking norms and all this discussion, by the way, about stopping democracy. Remember that around January 6th? Oh, sure. And since, do you remember that? I'm still old enough to remember the year 2020, which was a very violent year, as you may recall. And um, the uh, the the Senate Majority Leader of the Democrats, Chuck Schumer, stood outside of the Supreme Court, saying this: "You Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind, and you will pay the price." We're coming for you," he said. "We're coming for you." That, like a... that, of course, just happens, and no one does anything about it. You know, I, I didn't see the video of that clip. I just heard the audio. He does sound kind of like a really D-tier Bond villain in that, doesn't he? Yeah. There. Does that help? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. it. Does that help? Yep. Okay. You can... I want to tell you, Gorsuch. I want to tell you, Kavanaugh. You have released the world. Why does he have a right to say that? Why, why does a Supreme Court not have the right? To look to its uh, judicial, you know, precedent, history, intelligence, rationale, and philosophy, and come out with a decision without Democrats standing outside threatening violence against them. Why is that passable? 
Two years ago, that just went without comment, without notice, without sanction. It went, in other words, with countenance. We gave permission to this, such as the uh, such as the state the left has brought to us. Um, Lewis, thank you for joining us. Seth, it's always a delight. We'll be back with some concluding thoughts. Wow, that's an interesting song uh, <laughs> that came up on the rotation there. Folks, thanks for uh, spending some of your afternoon with us. I, um, I didn't know how to close this show, um, but I thought I would go back to a thought I just want to leave you with from something I used last week. Um, and, it, and it has to do with what I heard nonstop today on CNN, MSNBC, NPR, and from the Senate Democrats, that the Supreme Court has now taken a fascist turn. And Sam Alito and his fellow justices who drafted this majority opinion in the Dobbs case are fascists. I, um, I, I, I want to I I close the show by noting that the effect of this decision, if this decision is what is released this summer – is quite the opposite of fascism by asking for states to engage in more democracy on this, for asking state legislators and legislatures to engage in a vote on these things. Giving more power to the people is the opposite of fascism. I don't care about a national majority. I don't care about a national majority over moral questions. I care about durables. I care about what Professor Hadley Arcus thought when he walked through the Holocaust Museum and saw that tower of shoes that the Nazis thought were important. And he said, I thought of what Justice John McLean said in his dissenting opinion in the Dred Scott case. He wrote, you may think that the black man is merely chattel, but he bears the impress of his maker and is amenable to the laws of God and man, and he is destined to an endless existence. You get right what's durable in this world, in this society, in this country, and you'll get right with what we're discussing today. It's a confusion about what's important and what's durable that has led to confusion in law and morality, and I think we got a little straightening out on it today. God bless you all. Until tomorrow, I'm Seth, class dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.